Section six of Sunbeams by George W. Peck. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Clock Watcher and Whistle Jumper. The boy who has been employed in a store for two years, but who is looking for a job, he having been discharged recently, has almost got a play several times. But when the man who was going to employ him went to his former employer to ask about him, he got the reply to his inquiries about as follows. Ah, he is honest and all that, but he is a clock watcher and a whistle jumper. To many people that reply would be unintelligible, but to employers of men and boys, and girls for that matter, it means much. It means that half an hour before quitting time, the boy begins to watch the clock, and wonder what has got into it to make it go so slow. Every minute he glances at the clock, and ten minutes before it is time to quit, he begins to get ready, neglects the business at hand, and when the whistle finally blows as a signal for quitting, he starts for the door, and you couldn't catch him with a hound dog. He may not want to go anywhere in particular, and may loaf on a corner after he gets out, or he may go to a billiard room, or he may do anything he likes, but the fact remains that he wanted to get out of the place where he worked, and get out quick, and the chances are that his employer or some trusted patient assistant finished up the business that the boy left unfinished, and had his opinion of the boy. But he got out when the whistle blew, and that is all he cared, and the chances are he will not give the business of his employer a thought until the whistle blows the next morning, and he will not hurry half as much to get to work as he did to get away. And all the time the fool boy does not know that the employer is sizing him up, and knows that he does not take any interest in the business except at quitting time and payday. Some day, when business is a little slack, the whistle-jumper is called into the office and told that he needn't watch the clock any more and that he is free to go away out of hearing of the whistle, and that the house will get along with one less worker, and he is indignant. He wonders why the other boy is not discharged, the boy who, when there was work to do, always remained until it was done, and who got around a little before the time in the morning, and got his books out and his desk dusted before the whistle blew, but that boy remains and becomes a part of the business. The average employer wants boys and men who imagine if they are away the business loses something. Boys who can find things to do without being told. If the son was going into the business of giving advice to a boy at work in a place of business, it would be not to look at the clock unless to find out if it was time to take medicine, and when the whistle blows to act as though it was a great surprise and to work a little longer and not hurry to get away, but to hurry in the morning to get to work. The employer will notice it, and he will be pleased. You can't fool the employer much. He knows all that is going on, and when a boy gets wearied with work and tears the door off the hinges to get out, some day he does not come back. THE WOMAN BEHIND THE GUN It is necessary to take out a license in Maine, the same as in Wisconsin, to shoot game, and any person who expects even to shoot cats on a back fence fortifies himself with a license, for fear he will be arrested, 
for cats are always in season, everywhere, and Wisconsin cat hunters had better see that they have a license. The other day a woman in Maine took out a license as a hunter, and consternation seized the male hunters, and they will not go to the woods until she has shot herself. In fact, the state game warden telegraphed the news to all parts of the state that a woman had taken out a license and requested the hunters to keep out of the woods until she had got through shooting. There are women who can shoot fairly well at the trap, but when they show up at the bird shooting tournaments, the men instinctively get behind something while the woman is on deck with a gun. They know there is no particular danger except in front of the gun but a woman with a shotgun is always turning around at a critical time, with her gun cocked, to ask somebody if her hat is on straight. So men who are not heavily insured had rather get behind something when Hanner toes the mark. A young lawyer who is a great sport with a shotgun was telling, two or three years ago, about teaching his young wife to shoot, so she could go with him on his hunting trips and a man who used to hear him talk about the fun he would have when she got so she could shoot, met him the other day, taking his gun into a gun store, to have it got ready for the opening day of the season, and said to him, "'Hello, going hunting, are you? I suppose your wife is going along. I remember you told me a couple of years ago you had bought her a sixteen-gauge shotgun. I suppose she can shoot all around you, eh?' "'Yes, she has shot all around me, and hit me a couple of times,' said the young lawyer. "'But she is not going with me. I shall sneak off alone, on the pretense of having a case in court at St. Paul.' "'What's the matter? Don't she like hunting? I thought she was carried away with the sport.' "'Say, old man,' said the young lawyer, looking solemn, "'now this must be in strict confidence, mind you.' My wife would be dangerous with a gun if she was out in the middle of a forty-acre field, alone. She has no more idea of the danger of a shotgun than she would of a broom. The first thing I taught her was to always point the gun away from herself. She was the dearest thing in the world to me, and I didn't want her to shoot herself. But by jinks, she points it at me, and everybody that is in sight, and laughs about it, and never seems to think there is any danger. The first time we went out shooting chickens, she fired into the flock and killed one, or scared it to death, and she dropped the gun and ran after the bird, stepped on the trigger, and the other barrel went off, shot the heel out of my shoe, and filled one of the horses with bird shot, and the team ran away. It cost me sixty dollars for the wagon. Then she claimed every bird I shot for a week. She has no idea of distance, and will shoot at a bird as far as she can see it. I left her one day in the field, and started off to have a quiet life, and I scared up a bird, and she plugged at it, with me between her and the bird, and she filled my canvas coat-tail with number eight shot, and when I yelled to her, she fired the other barrel, and I had to lay down behind a log, or she would have been firing yet. I tried to scold her, when I dared get near her, about being careless, and she laughed and looked so sweet that I just looked at her and admired her until I found her gun was loaded and at full cock and pointed at my head with her dear little finger on the trigger. I had to quit hunting with her, or she would have been a widow before this. 
I do not want to hurt her feelings by telling her I am afraid of her, but I suffer from nervous prostration when she has the gun in her hand, and so I tell her the shooting is no good, or it is too hot or too cold, and I leave my gun at the gun store, and when I want to go hunting I sneak off, and she thinks I am attending to business. Oh, yes, she will find it out some day, and be heartbroken at my deceiving her, but I figure it is better for me to have a heartbroken wife than for her to have a headless husband. An Experimental Turkish Bath Some of the great inventions of the age have been discovered by the merest accident. This has been the case from earliest times, ever since Mr. Franklin discovered the attraction of gravitation by the fall of an apple from a tree. All must have noticed the new India-rubber bathing arrangements, by which a person can get inside a rubber affair, light a lamp, and take a Turkish bath at home. It is on the same principle of the old-fashioned whiskey sweat, but its being utilized as a full Turkish bath was an accident. Two years ago, on a cold November day, a party of duck hunters were sitting about a stove at a clubhouse at Lake Kashkanonk, thawing out after a morning in the bird blinds, during which nearly all were frostbitten. One of the gentlemen, Mr. Clemens of Janesville, sat with his cold feet in the oven of the cook-stove for a long time, thinking, and finally he said he had thought of a way to keep warm in a boat, and he was going to try it. The boys chaffed him and said the only way to keep warm in a duck-boat on such a day was to bring the boat in by the stove and line it with fur. But Mr. Clemens said he had a scheme, and after dinner he took a rubber blanket and a kerosene lantern and started for his boat. No man had ever started after ducks before from that clubhouse in the daytime with a lantern, and his companions looked at his two hundred and fifty pounds of flesh and his lantern, and they looked at each other and tapped their foreheads and sighed. Poor Fred, they thought. His mind could not stand the strain, and he has broken down just in the prime of life. He got into his boat, with the lantern at his feet, rowed out to his blind not far away, and the crowd saw him pull the rubber blanket up around his neck, and they watched him. In a short time steam or smoke was seen to arise from the boat, and the ice that had collected on the blind stakes began to melt and to disappear. For an hour Mr. Clemens never moved a muscle, and ducks began to settle in among his decoys, and they would swim up to the boat and look over the side, and look as though this was a new scheme in duck hunting that interested them. When the crowd saw that Mr. Clemens did not move when ducks were all about him, and they saw the steam arising in clouds about the boat, they became alarmed at the condition of their friend and thought that possibly he had passed away there in the boat, that his life's work had terminated, and they knew that if he had died it had been just as he would have preferred to have the end come, on the good old lake, surrounded by the rare game that he had pursued for years with so much pleasure. So they prepared to take his remains to the shore, and all started out in duck-boats to go to the blind and tow back to the shore he loved so well all that was mortal of the best fellow that ever shot a ten-pound gun at an eight-ounce duck. 
There was sadness on every face as the flotilla approached the blind, and no one spoke, as all were thinking of the sad end of one of God's noblemen. As the boat approached, the ducks flew away, having warmed their feet in the warm steam that came out of the boat. As the friends gathered around the steaming boat, which reminded them of a scene in the Yellowstone Park, they saw that the face of their friend was covered with frost from the top of his head to the rubber blanket. And then he realized that his friends were there, and he said, Boys, this is great. I have enjoyed the finest Turkish bath a man ever had. And he threw off the rubber blanket, and there was not a dry thread on him. In the enjoyment of his improvised Turkish bath, he had become oblivious of ducks and everything, and had given himself up to pure enjoyment. His friends got him to return to the clubhouse, where he was rubbed down and weighed, and it was found that he had lost twenty-seven pounds. The story was told in Janesville, and an inventor named Withington is said to have applied for a patent on the India-rubber Turkish bath, and it is said he is receiving a royalty of five hundred dollars a week on the patent, while Mr. Clemens, the originator, is not getting a thing, except an occasional bath at reduced rates. Such is life. End of section six. Recording by Melora.